The Athletic. Ladies and gentlemen, it is showtime. Please welcome the team of the Fulhamish Podcast. It's the Fulhamish Podcast, your independent voice of Fulham FC. My name's Sammy James. Welcome to the show today, brought to you by The Athletic UK. We're going to have a final word on Sunday's capitulation up at Aston Villa and look forward tentatively to Friday's very, very big game against Wolves at the Cottage. And then in part two, we're going to discuss the man that I think was overshadowed by the collapse at Villa Park, and that is Alexander Mitrovic. It was almost his reignition against Villa on Sunday, but it was somewhat forgotten in what happened in the final 12 minutes of the match. Understandably, of course, but it was still a big, big moment. Uh, And later on, we're going to look at our relegation rivals fixtures. And here joining me on the podcast today is Fulham's writer for The Athletic, Peter Rutzler. Hello. And a small change to the lineup today in the Thursday club. Ben Jarman. Ben, how you doing? Hello, hello. It's uh, really nice to be here. It's a good debut to have. And obviously filling in for the host of the UEL Breakfast Show is uh, big shoes to fill indeed. I was going to say, a small change there, Sammy. I think yeah, you're underplaying it a bit. I think Jack will be upset that you've called it a small change. I don't want to alarm anyone. I want to keep <laughs> everyone's on tenderhooks at the moment in the world. I feel like the last thing they need is to be overly alarmed by their regular Fulham podcast. Um, <laughs> it is a big deal, of course. Just before we start, just to say that uh, if you want to sign up to The Athletic, you can do right now for 40% off the regular subscription. Uh, You can read all of Peter's pieces and listen to the Fulhamish podcast ad-free. And of course, if you haven't yet, you can read the fantastic interview that Alan Shearer did with Scott Parker. It's all on The Athletic app right now. 40% off the regular subscription for just $3.99 a month. Go to theathletic.com forward slash Fulham pod. That's theathletic.com forward slash Fulham. Pod. And actually, that's where I want to start, Peter. Um, wanted to get your thoughts on Alan's interview with Scott Parker. Um, I thought it was, it was an excellent, excellent read and a really nice juxtaposition because obviously you've got Alan Shearer and his Newcastle allegiances, but he's also good friends with Scott Parker. It was kind of interesting to see the two collide and he seemed to be struggling over who he was uh, rooting for at times. Yeah, um, it's, it's quite nice. Obviously, Alan's able to, I think, connect really well with his interviewees. He's done a few interviews now on on The Athletic. And um, of course, having played alongside Scott, it, it made for a really interesting interview, both delving into those Newcastle routes and and also um, teammates and, and that sort of connection. So um, yeah, it was very interesting actually hearing uh, Scott Parker talk, um, particularly about his interest in psychology and really delving into that. I, I found it very interesting how he himself, you know, um, used Mike Griffiths as a, as a support uh, mechanism after leaving Newcastle. And I guess that's all the more important now as we enter this run-in and, uh, and particularly coming in off the back of, of, of the Villa game, um, where we saw basically Fulham sort of collapse potentially after that first goal, where mentally the, the team sort of gave way in, in a way that we haven't really seen this season. So really timely in that sense too, and um, went into some real depth. So yeah. Definitely worth reading if you haven't seen it yet. Yeah, and Ben, the psychology of Fulham this week will be a big challenge for for Scott Parker. That capitulation on Sunday, 12 minutes of madness really from Fulham. It's going to be some big picking up of the pieces this week at Motspur Park. Yeah, definitely. I feel like when we came into this game, that momentum was certainly on Fulham's side, especially when we're looking at it in isolation against Newcastle. 
and a performance of that type when you sort of collapse to to, to sort of that level is is really really hard to come to bounce back from and I, I kind of like Scott's um, interview after the game where he said that this wouldn't be brushed underneath the carpet that we had to look at it with uh, sort of like an honest mindset to to learn from it to move on and move forward but obviously another opportunity comes in a really quick turnaround on Friday. Yeah, um, Peter, what was your assessment of of the Villa game um, just before we get on to that Wolves match? I just was sat there. Okay, yes, I could see that Villa were growing into that match, but I maybe naively thought with 77 minutes gone and Fulham 1-0 up and Villa like had nothing to offer for the entire game. No Grealish maybe I was complacent. I just was watching it thinking, we'll see this out. I, I Obviously, one goal could come out of nowhere, but I never saw three going in in that nature like it did. Yeah. Um, a few things sort of jumped out at me after after the game. Um, I, I think the first goal is, is okay. It's just, as you say, it's, it's the two that followed quite quickly. And I, I guess that's, we have become, uh, watching Fulham, quite used to how, resolute they can be in matches and how they can shut things down and um and that just didn't quite happen in that moment and the way they were sort of impacted by um the blow of conceding and, and what that meant and it it does sort of raise that question as we've already alluded to about whether you know with with increasing pressure as the situation becomes more and more heightened how different emotional swings will, will impact the team and and part of that is things you can't control um but what was interesting uh, about what Scott said to said to, to the written press afterwards, um, one of the words he uses was not having the right mechanisms to cope with it. Uh, and I thought that was very interesting because he was hinting at not quite having the right foundation to deal with such a major impact, um, which is important because when you are low, when you are taking hits, you want something to fall back on and making sure that you can still function and, and operate even when you're you're still trying to recuperate. Um, and, and, and yeah, I don't think Fulham sort of had that. I think there was more to it as well. Um, I think Dean Smith made some good substitutions. I know that's been picked up a lot, mm. uh, from, from just some of the tweets I've been getting after the game and, and whatever else, but, you know, Dean Smith made two very good substitutions. He brought on Trezeguet and, and Keenan Davis and they brought renewed energy into the Villa attack and, and Fulham just weren't able to respond quickly enough, um, you know, there's probably two sides to that. It's whether the team themselves were were in the right frame of mind to deal with that change, or, or whether Fulham maybe could have made their changes sooner too. I think I think Scott Park was going to bring on Anthony Robinson just before the goal, yeah. and then obviously t- told him to turn around and say, "No, I'm, I'll have to change now." Um, there was that, and and then the one concerning thing for me um, was the consistency of errors. Uh, so that's three games now, pretty much in a row, where we've seen errors completely uncharacteristic and that's the one thing you probably need to eliminate sooner rather than later and you know we've the, the, the back the defense has been so solid you know we've not we've not really had a question to ask them but I just I don't I'm not one saying oh there should be some rotation but I think probably the first time now where you could actually make a case and say well maybe maybe there could be a change it uh either in the, as a as a three or as a two um you know, and whether obviously you've got lots to weigh up here. You know, if you make the change, what kind of impact will it have have on on the one who drops out? Um, but I think this was the first time after those three consecutive games where this has happened, where you think, well, maybe, maybe there there is a case there. Ben, I saw a lot of people criticising kind of Fulham's lack of attack on Sunday, and whilst that was true, we didn't create a lot. 
The game plan was going brilliantly for 75 minutes, even though Fulham hadn't carved out a huge amount of chances. We, we kept it solid and we took the opportunity, the best opportunity when it came. I still think at the moment, it is the defence that needs sorting out. When you can see three against City, two avoidable goals against Leeds, and then those kind of three goals against Villa, we've we, we scored against Leeds and Villa. I just don't know if the attack is actually the problem. We need to get back to a solid defence. If we can see two or three goals every single game, we aren't staying up. Yeah, I, I agree with this largely, but I also think that if you if you don't let in a goal, you're halfway there to getting one point, right? I mean, yeah. you draw at the very least if you don't let in a goal uh, and you might nick a win. But I, I think that there is something to be said for our lack of efficiency going forward. Still, I think it's been a, an overarching sort of element to our game for a long time now, especially going back to, to November. And it doesn't look like it's going to be solved anytime soon, either with the reinstation of Mitro, Mitrovic or um, with Josh Madger continuing to lead the line. It's kind of, uh, it kind of crying out for a little bit more quality. I think that Fulham are sitting a little bit deeper than they, they normally would do. Um, and it, therefore, it's very, very difficult to try and impose yourself on the game, especially when you're trying to play on the counter quite wide and quite high um, with Lookman, uh, for example. It's, it's very, very difficult to get bodies in and around. But um, I, I think I think Peter's right, though, because the last three games we've seen some three very uncharacteristic mistakes from that back line, not, normally from uh, Tosin Adarabayo. And I think that's quite out of character for Tosin. He always seems quite level-headed. He's a great distributor of the ball. But in this occasion, it looks like that confidence maybe have gotten the better of him on those occasions. Obviously, it's very difficult to see where his head's at. But I think, you know, having three games on the bounce now with mistakes might sort of bring him back down to earth. And I'm not saying by any means drop him and bring in Terence Congolo, for example, or, or Tim Ream. But I think it could be a case to say that you know, rhythm in a centre-half pairing is good, um, but we maybe need to give him a little bit more protection. I kind of didn't really like Lamina next to Reed this weekend. Um, I do normally, but I thought he was a little bit of a loose cannon. And I think the 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 penalty decision, um, well, the near-on penalty, sort of underlined how much of a loose cannon he, he can be in those games. Yeah, he got lucky, didn't he? It was the right decision, yeah. but I, I I don't think Lamina should escape from criticism because he happened to get to the ball like 0.0001 second before he like was going to foul Ollie Watkins. It was a mistake that he got away with. Like, yeah. let's not be around the bush and say, oh, it was a good challenge now. Um, he, he got away with one, didn't he? I, I mean, Peter, Wolves on Friday night comes around quickly, even quicker for Wolves. I feel a bit sorry for them with the scheduling. Monday night, then Friday night, but not our problem. Um, <laughs> they seem to be in a bit of free fall. And I saw a tweet the other day from someone who said, how are Wolves 14th? I swear they've lost every game this season um <laughs> there there, <laughs> there is a bit of a case of that that they have not been the wolves of the last couple of seasons obviously big misses the biggest one being Raul Jimenez up top and you know really hope he has a speedy recovery because he's a fantastic player and it was a horrible horrible injury but yeah they're not quite the uh the bitey wolves of old yeah, it's, it's funny you say that. It seems like they've lost every game of the season. And <laughs> to be honest, whenever you whenever you do watch them, it does seem like they lose or drop points. Um, they were always that team that could grind out wins or they always had some kind of like vice-like grip on matches where they'd just sort of grab you by the neck and they'd score one goal and win one nil. And they would just do that relentlessly. And 
and that's how they've sort of cemented their status in in the Premier League. Obviously, the problem was it was Raúl Jiménez who tended to score that one goal, um, and I think without him, they're a very different team. They brought in William Jose up front, but he's not quite as prolific, nor nor gives them that same outlet as, as Jiménez does. And and you know, even though you know they have picked up some points, and they're now on I think thirty five points in the table. Um, you know, they've had four wins, I think, since since Jimenez mm. dropped out the team. And, and that was a long, long time ago. And um, they've got two points from the last 15 I've got in front of me. And, and you know, they're, and they're not scoring either. Um, I think West Ham was the first time they scored two in a game that didn't have, that didn't involve a penalty since January. So, mm. you know, this isn't the same Wolves team. It's not the same free-flowing team. I mean, they've got still got the same threats. You know, Podence is a fantastic player. Pedro Neto has looked really good this year. He's really stepped on without... Uh, Tiago Jota obviously moved on to, to Liverpool and of course uh, Adama Traore but um, they they seem a bit vulnerable um, I don't think there's any sort of you know idea they could be pulled into the relegation scrap I think they, you know w- with the fixtures they've got they've got teams all in around the bottom that they've got to play but um, they, there is a vulnerability there and you know it'll be interesting to see whether Nuno plays with a four or with a back three you know back three is that <laughs> ridiculously solid setup. Um, but then when they play with a four, it's just completely wild, isn't it? Like the West Ham game was just was extraordinary. And that's not the first time they've done that with a, with a back four either, where the game's just completely opened up and we're just not really used to that with Wolves. So, yeah, anything can sort of happen on uh, on Friday. It just depends how they how they set up. But, yeah, an in- interesting season for them so far. And be in- obviously the, the turnaround's a lot tighter. And like you, Samuel, I do feel for them a bit, but, you know, they've got to cope. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Ben, you're a bit of a Portuguese, aren't you? You you understand your Portuguese football and uh, a Portuguese. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's gone wrong at Wolves this season, Ben? For, for, from your standpoint, well, from my standpoint, I think there's also a little bit of negativity in the fan base towards Nuno at the moment, just because he's been so reluctant to move away from that five five three two or five four one, whatever formation you want to, to draft it up as. He's been he's been really reluctant to move away from that. And I think that that tactical inflexibility that he's showing at Wolves has, has blighted his career just a little bit. I think that um if we're going very niche here, it when you look back at his time at Rio Ave and also at Valencia, he played very similar formations. Was also equal equally as reluctant to move away from them at that time. And that's ultimately why um, they saw his tenure cut short at both of those clubs. But I think with Wolves, they've also had, you know, some quite drastic injuries. Raul Jimenez is is one that you, you can pinpoint and obviously getting an injury that big to a, someone that key is always going to have such a bad effect on your teams. Firstly, the morale, but secondly, their ability to win games. But they've had a lot of inconsistency across the pitch. Some, some transfers that they have bought in hadn't exactly worked. So I think that... Uh, one of the players I was really excited to see in the Premier League was uh, Rian Eight Nori, who um, they brought in as right wing back from I think it was Cannes uh, in France. May have got the club completely wrong, but um, he he looked to be so good in Liga last year. Um, had some brilliant games against PSG, and then just hasn't really hit the ground running there. You also have a look at maybe potentially harsh to say this but the form of Connor Cody and, and Bowley has also like dropped every now and again Cody obviously got got called up to England but um has has dropped slightly since then but also good for us that um Bowley actually misses out I think this Friday uh with a negative Covid test that was received this morning so that is good for us but obviously they've got Leander Dendonka coming in who's uh pretty much a Swiss army knife for the 
those centre half and, <laughs> and and midfield positions. It's just a shame he's Belgian, really, and not Swiss for that that joke to be even funnier. <laughs> <laughs> he's a Belgian army knife. Yeah, he is. <laughs> just made of um, chocolate I'd- beer. Ike Nori came from Angers, Ben, oh, uh, not Cannes. But you're, look, your knowledge is so good, Ben. I, <laughs> I hate to pick you up on it and be pernickety, but I know that you be, you'll be kicking yourself I for am. the rest of the podcast. I'm fuming. Um, that was lovely that pronunciation, Sammy. Angers, beautiful. I didn't get, get a fr- I didn't that. get a French degree for nothing, Peter. <laughs> well, in fact, I did. It's been absolutely useless to me for everything I've done. But actually, occasionally it comes in. It comes in useful. It's all right. Um, You've got that my really fr- nice PSG shirt with RTL on the front that you walk around London in. I, I do. I do. That is one of my favorite um, things that I got from my year abroad in Paris. Uh, one of the few things uh, I was I was a regular uh, at PSG my my year in Paris. Anyway. Um, Back to Friday's match. Peter, it's a massive opportunity for Fulham, isn't it? And we've said it so many times and we said like, oh, Villa's an opportunity and Leeds is an opportunity. I've got a similar feeling to how I did before the Everton game, where that game felt a bit now or never, right? Okay, you've lost some games. You've not been winning. If you don't win this one, it's really looking a bit, a bit touch and go. Yeah, um, I think for me it feels a bit like Sheffield United, um, just because of the the way we the way Fulham sort of came off the back of the Burnley game, which was a draw, and no one was really sure where where anyone sat with it. Was it good? Was it bad? Um, and the, and the fact that the gap just needed to be pulled pulled tighter, and that was a game I felt had a lot of pressure on it because mm. not just not just the fact that Fulham needed to win to make sure that they were still keeping things tight and and in touching distance, but because of what it would mean for Sheffield United as well, because, you know, a win for Sheffield United suddenly maybe <laughs> their long shots of, of, of survival might just be rekindled. It, it can be a result like that that can can really help a team kick on. Um, but Fulham, Fulham rose to the occasion then. Uh, it was scrappy, it was tight, and it play, played out exactly how they wanted it to be played. Uh, this, this Friday, again, is big. Um, you know, it's big in the sense that this is a third opportunity now to get out of the, the drop zone, even if it is for 24 hours or however long it is. Um, the the, the longer, the more you pass up that opportunity, the harder it is to actually achieve it, I find. And, and I think that that's probably the concern. It's whether this becomes some kind of a mental block for Fulham, this, this one hurdle that they can't seem to overcome. And, and I guess that's, that's where you're sort of right there, Sammy, in mentioning Everton because Fulham had gone so long without a win. And it was a case of, well, if you can't win any games, then, you know, what, what are the chances? And, and even the Leicester game actually was a similar sort of sentiment, wasn't it, after the slow start and just needing to find a way to win these matches. Uh, and, you know, the fixtures are tricky. I, you know, Arsenal away, Chelsea away sounds extremely daunting. I mean, Arsenal are definitely not the force they once were. And, and it depends which Arsenal team show up. Um, I, you know, the, the game on the opening day of the season, I don't think is a is reflective of, of either teams this season, both Fulham and Arsenal. So that that's a tricky that that that's a game potentially where things could be recovered. Um, Chelsea is, is always going to be a tough game, and and but then we're really in the heat of it, and it it just takes Newcastle to 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 pick up a result in their upcoming game. Looks like it's Burnley this weekend for them, and that's absolutely massive. Um, and and <laughs> this is this is the point where where we're at now because if if one of these teams suddenly takes off. It can really transform the outlook down the bottom, and um, which is probably why the the pressure is on a little bit here for the Wolves game. And it's the home games that are going to make the difference, as we've talked about frequently. You know, the home games are potentially the more winnable, and you know, like Villa with Wolves in a bad spell, um, it does present an opportunity. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, Ben, uh, we'll come on to changes a little bit later in the podcast, but I guess just your assessment of this match and and its importance, especially with those fixtures that that Peter mentioned. What, what what's your what's your thinking going in into Friday? Is it must win or like a few times we said this season? Okay, this this doesn't absolutely define the season. No, for me, it absolutely defines the season. It's now it's now do or die for me. Um, I, I kind of tweeted out the the other day that I think Fulham are, are sort of like on the canvas and they need to drag themselves back up. And I think that the way to do it is by getting a positive result out of Wolves. We've now got, correct me if I'm wrong, seven more opportunities left to to try and save our, our soul here, to save our life in the Premier League. And if we don't start doing it now, it's always going to get to a point where it's too late and it is going to come down to that final day against Newcastle. And obviously... The amount of pressure on that you would like to, you'd like the club to have secured either their status or to be, firstly having like a sort of mini buffer over Newcastle ahead of that game, going into the final day, you know, needing a win is so much pressure on that on that squad that you would hope that you know they take the six opportunities beforehand to secure that status. But I think that yeah, when you when you look at Wolves in isolation, they're they're a team that are winless in five. They're not scoring as freely as, as perhaps they would have liked. They're quite up and down in their form. And I think that they're a team that, that Fulham can get at. Um, and I think one thing about Fulham and, and this Fulham team under Parker is that every time they get knocked down, they seem to get straight back up again and and kind of come back swinging. So we saw it last season when we lost to Brentford. We lost to Leeds. Um, people sort of wrote us off. There are a few fans saying that we wouldn't even finish in the playoffs. And we went up that year, you know, Fans say we'll be relegated by you know, February, March time when we started yeah. out this season. We're now within a win of being out of that relegation zone and in with a fighting chance of keeping up and surviving. So you have to take these games as they come and, and come out swinging. Exactly. Okay, well, we'll see what happens on Friday. Uh, and one man that might be very important in getting three points on Friday is Alexander Mitrovic. And he's the topic of conversation up next. Part two of the Fulhamish podcast, Sammy James here. I'm joined by Peter Rutzler. Hello. And Ben Jarman. Hello, hello. So, Alexander Mitrovic. Peter, you wrote a piece uh, profiling him and his kind of tumultuous season, to put it lightly, is out in The Athletic um, this morning. And really, it's looking at the story of his season and what a wild roller coaster it's been. I think the season started well for Mitrovic. He scored those two goals at Leeds and we thought, same old Mitrovic, here he goes. Our big hope for Premier League survival. It's all going to rest on his form. And look, we know how catastrophically wrong it went. The penalty miss against Sheffield United, the penalty miss for Serbia. Oodles of time out of the team, the COVID breach at Christmas, loss of form, loss of confidence, not fitting in with Parker's plans, the arrival of Josh Madger, which, you know, if you ever listen to like a Peter Crouch podcast and he talks about how, look, you're happy that your team wins, but you're never happy when another striker comes into the club and starts banging in goals. Like no true striker gets pleasure from seeing another striker come in and play better than you. And then he's had this fortnight with Serbia where he scored all of these goals. And on Sunday, Peter, it felt like the moment for him. It felt like the coming of age, Mitro's back, Mitro's reignited, fire emojis all over Twitter. (laughs) 
But Dean Smith made a couple of substitutions and poured water right over the reignition and the party that, that was about to come about for Mitrovic. But if you take away what happened in the game, Sunday was still a big day for him. And I think that's what this this piece touches on that you've written. Yeah, I mean, it, it did sort of get sort of lost in in, in what happened at the end of the game. And uh, and it, it really was such an, it's an important moment for him. And it just sort of rounded off an extraordinary seven to 10 days where everything that seems to have been pretty negative for him, both club and country, is just sort of completely turned on its head. Um, and, you know, being able to do that in such a short period of time looks like such an important thing for him personally, but but also for Fulham. Um, you know, you touched on it there, Sammy, in terms of his season. It's It really hasn't gone the way anyone thought it would do. And, and you know, we, we talked at length about, you know, the play, whether he fits into the change in playing style, um, whether he could get back into the team, how much the 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 result for Serbia against Scotland in the European Championship playoff, how much that will have affected him. Um, but but even even during all the things to do with COVID, um, and then when he had that return just after January, where it felt like you know when he started against West Brom, it's like okay, right, this is Mitrovic's moment. This is where he's going to start. And he played so well in that game, didn't play so well against Leicester, and then all of a sudden Josh Magic comes in and he contracts COVID. And it just felt like it was going to be one of those those seasons, despite everything, despite the goals he scored last year, and and even on the international front. And you know, we we talked about it with Jack previously on the pod, and about how even for Serbia there was a question mark over whether he'd even get called up um, because of the form of Luka Jovic and Dusan Vlahovic, and and all of that together has, has made for what has been a difficult period for Mitrovic. And and just just trying just speaking to those around the club and and, and around him, it's it's evident that it, his confidence has been very, very low, um, as you would expect. I don't think there's any sort of surprise about that, but it's it sort of impacted the way he's been playing. You know, they, they talk about how he, he may, he starts to to drift away from where he's, where he's most effective, which is between the two, two goalposts and, and, and linking up with wingers more when he's missing those opportunities. And I think Scott Parker talked about it on, in his pretty much press conference. And he said that the Mitrovic, not just in terms of him specifically, but talking about him saying you need to be in a position to miss chances. Um, and that's something that he wasn't really doing. And of course, he has been confined to those those cameos from the bench. We haven't seen him play week in, week out. But um, whenever those sort of opportunities did arise, you know, I, you know we, we talked about it before, but uh, go back to that Leicester game where the, where the ball squared to him and he's, he's what, seven, eight yards from goal and his, his footwork's not quite right and he's not there to to put the ball away. He's not been able to take any of those moments. And, and that's what completely flipped um, on international duty. Um, and the transformation was not just in a sense of, you know, he's, he's scoring goals again, great. But it was almost for him personally, just having that massive lift um, was so, so important. And coming in, coming back to Fulham, it, it, you know, it was the opportunity to to really take advantage of that for, for Scott Parker. And, and he put him into the team. And I think his performance sort of reflected it. And as you said, it has been overshadowed by what happened at the end of the game. But the fact is he managed to end a, a goal drought that had lasted, what, hundred and nearly 200 days. Um, hadn't scored since those goals against Leeds. Um, and to have that slate sort of wiped, suddenly everyone is, is, is back supporting him. It, it's huge. And, and you know, we, we talked about endlessly how Fulham have struggled for goals. And, and, and now having Mitrovic seemingly playing a bit more on instinct, a bit more like the natural finisher that we know he can be, uh, it makes such a such a massive massive difference, and it's 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 a new card for Fulham to play. It's almost like having a new player, really, isn't it? Um, 
and you know, it'll be interesting to see how, how for how long he can maintain it and and what that means for for the rest of the season in particular. I mean, Ben, I thought Mitro is kind of bomb-proof at Fulham. I thought he could do no wrong ever. I, I just thought he he seemed to just have a knack of always scoring the important goal and the always being the right place, right time. And I always thought long term it would be a case of Mitro outgrows Fulham and actually it's kind of gone the other way around and I also just thought that Mitro is one of those people who would never suffer a real dip in confidence I just thought he never could and actually I reckon this season's really had like a a a toll on on him and must have been massively difficult for him personally I mean, it's very, very easy to downplay how much missing that penalty to send um, Serbia to the Euros has an effect on him. I mean, it's so easy to say, oh, he just missed a penalty in the shootout versus Scotland. You know, he must have felt a little bit rubbish. But if you look at him uh, and if you look at Serbia, they've got such a good track record of recently of qualifying for tournaments. They have maybe what they would call a golden generation. Obviously, we talked about Jovic and... Um, uh, Vlahovic is coming through at Fiorentina. They've got good players all over the pitch now and they should be equipped for going to those major tournaments. And I think that, you know, for for him to almost single-handedly mean, mean that they don't go to Euro, Euro 2020 or Euro 2021, whatever you want to call it, it becomes such a big thing and it becomes such a, a mentally draining aspect for Mitrovic because he put his, they've put their all into this qualifying campaign. And I think that's why you've seen him come out firing for the World Cup because he's been able to put those demons behind him and, and five goals in a week obviously starts to signify a return to some sort of form. And I think you saw that in the opening 45 against Villa. I think he had three shots in the opening 25 minutes around about that period in time. He had five shots in the match overall, obviously managing to bag for the first time since uh, September, I think. So, Obviously, really good for Mitrovic and for Fulham to see him returning to form. But it was just, I think everyone in the fan base had just sort of downplayed that this this penalty was sort of could be swept under the carpet. And obviously, the one the the one in, in and around that time period as well was against Sheffield United, where Fulham so badly needed to pick up a win against a relegation candidate. And, and, and you kind of sit there and think that actually Mitrovic might have taken that a little bit harder than we all thought. And that sort of such se- severe drop off in form was due to those penalty misses. And I think you're, you're seeing a guy that is, is finally coming uh, and seeing a return back to confidence. You're seeing that in his movement. You're seeing that in the shots that he's taking. I think Peter's article sums it up so well. When you, when you say that you, you see him moving outside of that sort of goalpost zone, you see him dropping almost to the edge of the box a lot of times, sort of almost taking himself out of those scoring positions that normally he'd be putting himself into. So... It's really good for Fulham, and especially over these next seven games, to see the return of what ultimately is our talisman to form. I do find it frustrating, Peter, though, that sometimes I just don't know if we're playing always to his strengths. I know football's a bit more complicated than like knock it into the box, but a couple <laughs> of times Kenny Tete or Bobby Decadova Reed have it on the right hand side, and particularly Tete, and we saw the kind of delivery he can put into the box. And there was a few times against Villa, I'm thinking, stick it in and put Mitro's head on it. And I. But on the other hand, I do think that Mitro is trying to adapt his game. I saw him pressing more against Villa than mm. I feel like I've ever seen him. There was a moment in the second half where I think he went to press either the goalkeeper or one of Tyrone Mings or Konza and someone didn't press with him and he was getting angry. I think maybe it was at Cavalero on the right-hand side. He is trying to adapt to Parker's way of, of playing and maybe it's taken such a dip in confidence for him actually to realise, okay, I can't just be same old Mitro, stick it on my head, son. 
I think we saw similar um, in the game against West Bromwich Albion, um, where you know he can be such a good link player, and I, I think we also saw it for Serbia against Portugal, where he does drop in and can bring those more exciting, quicker players into play. And there's not there's not really you know Mitrovic is a different player. We all know that his strengths are, as you say, is in the air, is his physicality, his hold up play, uh, but he can also be a very good link player. And I think it's it's been a case of just trying to adapt to that. I think it is twofold. I think it, what was interesting putting the piece together was just hearing what people were saying about how with his lack of confidence, he would want to take himself out of those situations and almost reduce risk so he's not going to fail. Almost because it's becoming that that that, that much more difficult for him. Um, and, you know, and, and, and there is an element of not playing always to his strengths. You know, Joe Bryan, of course, is one, one name that keeps popping up there. In the, in the Twitter mentions as well, you know, just saying, why don't we just d- deliver it, deliver it straight into onto his head? And we, we've seen Kenny Tessa do it before, um, and I, I think there is an element of that. I do think there is an element of that. But you know, the, once when that process isn't working, there is also sort of like a, a trust element, isn't there? You you want if you if you're going to do it, you want to know it's going to going to be successful. And, and when when the player's not right, and when the system's not always right for that, and when Fulham are playing in in a manner that doesn't always see them dominate and possession and camp in the final third in which which probably Fulham were used to from last season you're not probably going to get those those same sort of opportunities um but but look, I think what's important is is the fact that he's, he's got his, his confidence back now and I think Ben raised a really good point about penalties uh we've almost forgotten the, the penalty chaos at the start of the season but of course Mitrovic was taken off penalties um which is which is a difficult thing to take for any number nine and then obviously missed a penalty for Serbia and then all of that together you know, really was very, very quick and pretty much overwhelming. And it, it wasn't like Mitrovic was given the opportunity to just take that, to, to make amends immediately. Um, and in a way, it's almost fortunate that he, because of his goal record for Serbia, has been so good that when, you know, he when he did get that break, he was able to not just score some goals, but also break the the all-time goal scoring record, which is such a, a big emotional thing. And we've, we've seen that with his with interviews since I think he gave an interview to Serbian TV afterwards where he was very, very emotional. I think he spoke to to Jeff Proust and, and, and Fulham as well on, on the Fulham website. And you could see how much that meant to him. And just to be able to have something that important to combat what was probably an unbelievably impactful event, um, you know, to, to take place and, and, and which we probably all did underestimate um, is, has been, well, in, you know, it's in a sense quite fortunate for both him, but also for, for for Fulham. And now that he is playing back on instinct and he is able to add these elements to his game, then maybe we shall see some goals which Fulham really need in, in the running. Um, ben, do you think now he's an automatic starter, especially for, for Friday's game against Wolves? It would surely be crazy to, to drop a striker that's found their form and confidence back. I think so, yeah. Uh, when you look at Wolves and, and you see that Bolly's messing this weekend and you know the, the up and down form of the rest of that central uh, centre-half pairing or, or three, whatever you want to call it. I think it'd be mad not to put Mitrovic in there, especially if, if someone like Max Kilman, for example. I know perhaps, you know, calling someone out like that and just saying, I'll oh, put Mitrovic on Kilman is is perhaps maybe an obvious answer, but targeting people who haven't got the biggest experience with someone like Mitrovic is always going to be a massive handful. Um, and I think getting people in and around him, and I think this weekend... What, what has gone under the radar slightly is actually the form of Ruben Loftus-Cheek as well because we started to see him really starting to drive with the ball which is something that we saw coming out of our RLC at the World Cup in 2018. It's almost taken nearly three years or so for that the best parts of and the best aspects of his game to come back and 
I think once you get someone like RLC around Mitrovic and they can start to interplay and RLC's passing um passing range is actually quite big and I think that's quite understated at times. Um I think it bodes well for Fulham. I think although this weekend's result was was a bad one and obviously the capitulation of the side is not positive in any way, shape or form. There there are flashes of, of positivity to take away from, from Villa Park and I think obviously return return to form of Mitrovic is one of them and Ruben Loftus-Cheek is the other. So I think that perhaps the, those those two tandem, the tandem of players there could be the sort of uh, the elevator that we need to get a good result there. And I think that that's perhaps the two people that we thought at the start of the season would be giving Fulham a chance in games. is now actually going to give them a chance at the end of the season when perhaps both of them had underwhelmed slightly throughout the whole season. Okay, right. Well, um, after the break, we're going to look a little bit more at Friday's game and look at what our relegation rivals have in store this weekend. Part three of the Fulhamish podcast. It's Sammy here with Peter and Ben. Uh, and let's have a look then at who our relegation rivals are facing this weekend. Um, ben, we have to start with Newcastle. They are the obvious team that we are battling, although we will come on to West Brom and wherever the, maybe they've entered themselves back into the picture in a second. Um, Newcastle have Burnley at Turf Moor. It's uh, a midday kickoff for Newcastle. And Burnley haven't been amazing recently. We could do with them turning up on on Sunday. Hopefully, Sean Dyche might be saying to his players, win this one and we're safe, lads. Well, yeah, you would really hope so for our for our sake. Um, and as you say, Burnley have, have sort of done what they needed to do for the past few weeks, get the results here and there where they, where they needed to and where they could and almost guaranteed their safety. I think it's probably one more win and they're definitely out of it now. Um, so you are hoping that, that Dyche says that. Only thing is, the second half against Tottenham, Newcastle got very, very shot heavy. They had, I think they had 23 shots on on, on goal across uh, across that match. They had an, an XG, and George Singer's going to love this, they had an XG of 4.27 for that second half alone, which is more than they've ever recorded since Opta. Uh, and XG has been in um, in use, I guess is the right word. Um, so I think yeah. Newcastle are kind of going to take a bit of a different approach here. I think they might take it easy for the first 45 minutes, make sure everything's tight and then just throw the kitchen sink at Burnley. I think if anything, Burnley love its teams throwing the kitchen sink at them, especially Ben Mee uh, and, and Tarkowski. They love a bit of a battle. So we just need them to, to sort of curtail Newcastle a little bit. And I, I Obviously, I'm not backing Steve Bruce whatsoever. I think uh, he's not really going to change a, a huge amount, but I do hope that Burnley get us a really positive result there. It's quite a, quite a big moment, actually, this weekend, um, just because of where Newcastle's fixtures are at. Uh, obviously, after Burnley, it's West Ham, and West Ham are absolutely flying. Oh, Jesse Lingard, FC, they're absolutely bombing it. <laughs> um, but then, it, then it's Liverpool, Arsenal, Leicester, City. That That's, that's a hot period for for Newcastle and the worry is that because of how well they played at Tottenham and yes it was Jose Mourinho playing Jose Mourinho Tottenham style and just burning every bridge that he's ever thought to build um, <laughs> it's it, it, it just opens the door a little bit for the momentum to swing and I guess that was part of the worry after Villa and, and the fact that Newcastle picked up a point um, and why we're probably leaning heavily on this Wolves game even though there are still games to play afterwards um, for, for, for Fulham and, and there is still time to, to recover any growing gap 
um, is just the fact that Newcastle could build up a little head of steam. Um, obviously, with Callum Wilson getting closer, uh, he's still not back in the squad yet, but he's not far away. Alan Sam Maxman obviously played a bit of, you know, a few minutes um, against Spurs. You just you just worry that they could build something there, and you know, it's a, you know it'd be a different story with with the fans coming back and and whatever else, and, and what that would do to Newcastle. I'm sure it'd be a different story, but. Um, just if if they do pick up a result against Burnley, it just puts them in a good mindset ahead of some very tough fixtures. Whereas if it swings the other way and, and Burnley and Sean Dyche manage to do a job on them, um, it doesn't set them up very well for when they play sides chasing European football. Um, so it's actually quite a decisive sort of swing period. And I think looking at the fixtures, Newcastle probably have slightly tougher, but they, obviously the, the other side to it is they have one extra game. Ben, West Brom. Yes. Went to Stamford Bridge and got a result the Fulham fans could only dream of. Five goals at Stamford Bridge. Um, it was an incredible performance. Um, they're five points behind Fulham, eight points behind Newcastle. Got a significantly worse goal difference than both ourselves and Newcastle. Mm. With Sam Allardyce at the helm, could they achieve the impossible? Their fixtures are quite kind. They've got Southampton on Monday night. I felt like we ruled out West Brom and rightly so no one saw them going to Stamford Bridge and and let alone win but score five goals yeah they have been improved lately as well with a few better results here and there is there a chance or are they still down look it's a mountain to climb um it kind of has parallels to when Sunderland were that many points off uh, in the season that we got relegated and somehow managed to overcome that mountain so they're they're five points off us Eight points off Newcastle. Uh, the the differential of those results almost kind of feels like they're almost done and dusted, but not exactly like nail in the coffin territory now. But I think disturbingly, when anyone's got Sam Allardyce at the at the managerial helm, they've always got a chance of getting out of these kind of things. And there, there's almost every weekend now for the past like two or three, there have been those results where you sit there and your stomach just tightens in that knot because it almost goes against Fulham. And you kind of feel like the momentum that we had is kind of shifting towards other teams now. And we've had a mini blip where every other team has had theirs. So you hope that Fulham come out the other side of, of this result against Villa and they kick on, they come out swinging. Um, I, I think that it's a bridge too far for West Brom, but you can, as I said, you can never count them out as much as it pains me to say uh, that an Allardyce team is, is still very much in the running of staying in, in the Premier League. I just can't see it. Really, I'm optimistic about Fulham's chances, but I'm very pessimistic about the other teams, if you know what I mean. Like, they all of them seem to be building some sort of momentum around us where ours is faltering, but I don't know if that's because I'm too self critical of Fulham. I don't, I don't think I, like, it's definitely the case that Fulham's form sort of opens the door a little bit, and, and I think it's right that West Brom is sort of brought up again because they, you know, the result they picked up at Chelsea was superb, and that can do wonders for a season it can really bring a team together I just don't think they have the quality in the squad to be able to do it and you, <laughs> I mean maybe maybe Sam Allardyce has suddenly sensed, sensed a bit of light here but he doesn't give give off the body language that this is the same sort of feat as his, his previous achievements and uh, maybe I'm, I'm I'm pushing it too much but I, I, <laughs> I was thinking to myself I've got to take a, take a line here I can't I can't sit on the fence like with most things but I, I, I genuinely I think it would be too far for West Brom. I'd be really, I mean, if they, 
watch what I'm saying here. I'm suddenly just I'm yeah, talking, you're gonna get I'm getting images in my mind of the last day of the season. It's like nil nil between Fulham and Newcastle and West Brom which just leap, leap the two. Um, <laughs> I, I think from my point of view, it, my worry is Fulham fans have been burnt from a position like this because that season that Fulham did go down yeah. the first time, it was not a team that was in the relegation battle. It was Sunderland who were down and out, who sunk us all at the last second. They And it was a win at Chelsea that sparked it. So I think it's a little bit deja vu again that it, that it and I'm, I'm hoping it doesn't, of course, and it does look bad, but I don't know. I think if they win at West Brom on Monday and let's say Fulham and Newcastle didn't get results this weekend, they will definitely have some confidence that they can do it. If they start getting to within three points, two points of Fulham, I think they're back in the picture. I really, really do. The one thing that's in West Brom's favour right now is there is absolutely zero pressure on them. You know, it, well, I say zero pressure, but compared no, there is, to the there. teams around them, no one's expecting anything. And I think that was probably where Fulham were at when they went to Everton as well, because of the size of the points gap. The fact that it had got to 10 points, it's like, okay, look, this is, we're, we're cut adrift here. There's, we've got nothing really to do. There's not the same expectation. Nobody expects us to do anything. That's changed now for Fulham. And it's certainly different at Newcastle as well um, and just that it does make I guess it does make West Brom a wild card option in that because they'll go into these games against Southampton and Leicester and Villa um, some of whom will not have anything to play for it's conceivable that Southampton well Southampton now don't really have much to play for at all um, Wolves by the time they play them won't have anything to play for Arsenal potentially too um, Leeds at the end of the season as well so the, these are games where you know <laughs> maybe they could pick up the points. Suddenly I'm coming around to it, Sammy, because you, you, you set doubts in my mind, but that, that is a big differential, I think, between them. It's like little things like Callum Robinson scoring four goals all season. All four of them have come against Chelsea and, you know, they've beaten Chelsea twice. And it's just like little things like that that you feel like are counting against Fulham. Uh, and obviously it links back to the title of this very podcast. It's very Fulham-ish for that to happen to us. I'm hoping not. And I've maybe set doubts in everyone's minds now about West Brom. But just suddenly that that result at the weekend just knocked me for six. I think just in the fact that I was like, oh, how nice would that be for one day Fulham to go and do something like that at Chelsea? And, and two, like, shit, like, don't do that. Slow down, West Brom. <laughs> like, please. We all thought you were dead and buried and we were yeah. quite enjoying it. But we shall see. Big game for Fulham, though, on Friday uh, against Wolves. Um, just before we finish the podcast, Peter, uh, do we have any injury news, particularly on Lookman? It was a bit concerning the way he went off. And whilst he hasn't been quite as electric as he was at the start of the season, losing him is not great. No, I think it'd be, it would be a blow to lose Lookman. I think we've talked about that before in comparison to Newcastle, where Newcastle have had those injuries. They've had those key layoffs and where Fulham haven't necessarily. And, you know, the worry always is, is, with someone like Lutman, and, and yes, I know there's there's been some some mild criticism of of his recent form, um, and, and not quite finding that 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 flair that made the difference in that has made the difference in a lot of games for Fulham this year. Um, to lose Lutman, you know, would be quite a blow because I don't think Fulham necessarily have the reinforcements behind him to to necessarily compensate. If, for example, this was then followed by another, say, knock to Bobby Deckard over Reed or or another another forward, Ivan Cavallero or, or Ruben Loftus-Cheek as well. Um, so in terms of injury news, obviously he was assessed earlier this week. Uh, I don't get the impression it's serious, but I, I'm not sure in terms of what it means for for, for Friday. 
Uh, we'll find out later today uh, when Scott Parker speaks to the press on that. Uh, obviously, it's a big couple of weeks for Tom Kearney too, who we've all sort of forgotten a little bit, I guess, at the moment. All trying to see how what's next with him with his with his knee injury, which has just persisted all season long, and he's come through that course of injections now, and it's just a case of seeing how he's managing the pain when he gets back onto the grass. So, should have another update later today. But I think I think you know if it, if it's not going to happen for him in the next couple of weeks, then it's probably not going to happen for him for for the rest of the season, unfortunately. Yeah, big shame there. Okay, well, we'll see what happens against Wolves on Friday. Thank you for listening to the pod today. Uh, we will be back on Sunday with a review of the match. Uh, Peter Rutzer, thank you very much. No, thank you, Sammy. And Jarman, thank you for stepping in so wonderfully. No, thank you for having me on. It was a great debut, in Super. my opinion. I mean, as if you haven't been on Fulhamish about a million times, but you've you've joined the Thursday club now. And, I feel uh, like it's an elite club that I'm proud to be a part of. It's like Champions League Fulhamish. Yeah, it's like the stonecutters of Fulhamish. Yeah, Freemasons <laughs> of Fulhamish. Yeah, a niche Simpsons reference there for anyone that wants it. Um, well, thank you for listening today. Have a good weekend. Let's see if Fulham can win on Friday. Comedy Whites. Thank you.